Good morning, everyone. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, Reverend Stegemeyer is on vacation. We thought we would go ahead and give him one since it's the summer. And uh, so I will be doing a standalone series today. And I'm titling this, this uh, standalone lecture, The Royal Priesthood. The Royal Priesthood. So we're going to look into this topic, uh, looking at the biblical text that underlay it. But what we want to acknowledge first, and this is a little bit of insider baseball if you're a Lutheran, because we Lutherans have had this biblical doctrine of the royal priesthood get a bit skewed over the centuries. And we've got some misunderstandings that are actually quite common. For example, chief of which is, rather than use the biblical language of royal priesthood for this concept, what is used is the priesthood of all believers. Okay, the priesthood of all believers. Is that phrase anywhere in Scripture? Okay, it's not. Again, a little insider baseball, so I apologize. Is, is that phrase, the priesthood of all believers, Anywhere in the Lutheran confessions? No, it's not. Is that phrase, the priesthood of all believers, found anywhere in the writings of Luther? No. So where on earth did we get the impression that the priesthood of all believers is some sort of central Christian doctrine, or that that language really ought to be clung to as though it were some sort of confessional standard or issue? We have to reset ourselves and get a more biblical mindset. Now, the background of the language, priesthood of all believers, in common parlance in English is that, what does it sound like? What does it sound like being said, the priesthood of all believers? Everyone is a priest. Or as one book published in the, I think it was the 1970s in the LCMS put it, everyone a minister. Hey, everyone is a pastor, and the only reason you have someone in the pastoral office at church is because we can't all be up there. There's not room. Plus, you know, there has to be someone to pastor to. And so um, we're going to confer all of our individual pastoral offices on this one person, and he's going to be the pastor, which creates some really bizarre theology if you think about it. I mean, for example... And what, would it not be more accurate then for the pastor to stand up and at the beginning of the service after you've confessed your sins, he turns and he says, I have called an ordained servant. How does it usually go? Of Christ, yeah. Um, I have called an ordained servant of the Faith Lutheran Church. And not of Christ, because it's Faith Lutheran Church who's put me here, not Christ. Forgive you all your sins in the name of the Constitution, Bylaws, and Voters' Assembly. Because if the, if the power and the authority, if the conference comes from the congregation, that's how it 
That's how it should sound. So we've got something really askew with this doctrine, not only the language, but the thinking that everyone's a pastor. Then, of course, we run into, we run into texts like 1 Timothy or Titus, where we get these lists of qualifications for a pastor. And not every Christian fits those qualifications. Okay, so where does this language of the priesthood of all believers come from? Not from Luther, but about 150 years later from a man named Philip Spainer. He's the one at least that popularizes the concept. Philip Spainer, if he's not the father of pietism, he's close. Well, what's pietism? Lots of different ways to think about and define pietism. Here's mine. What was going on in the church was sometimes referred to as dead orthodoxy. An over-rationalization of the church to where everyone was interested in doctrine, at least this was the perception, everyone was interested in doctrine and theoretical ideas, but no one was interested in life and Christian living and devotion in piety. If rationalism was the head, piety was the heart. Now, you can see here, if you, if you know me and you know how I look at theology, you can already see here two opposite errors, can't you? It's in the head only and not the heart, rationalism. Get your heart out of here. That's one error. What's the opposite error? It's in the heart only and not in the head. Get the head out of here. It's all touchy-feely and in my heart and kumbaya, but of course, I don't think they had it at that time. But Okay, so then it's both doctrine and life, both head and heart in proper proportion and proper balance. Now, pietism as a reaction against rationalism um, causes one to look internally at one's own heart, not externally at the doctrines and words of God, so internally. Now, what does that mean? Internal, not external. That has an effect on on how one views the sacraments, because the sacraments are external, things outside. They're only of any use whatsoever insofar as they affect me on the inside. And frankly, me on the inside is just fine and just spiritual and just pious enough without them. And so in pietism, you have a de-emphasis on the sacraments and an emphasis instead on internal piety. Well, faith clings to the sacraments for surety of salvation. We cling to our baptism and say, Christ has washed away my sins in the waters of holy baptism. We cling to the Lord's Supper and say, there when Christ says, take, eat, take, drink, my body and blood given and shed for you for your forgiveness, my faith grasps hold of that. Well, if my faith doesn't want to grasp hold of those external things, if I've convinced myself that those are external and doctrinal and dogmatic, what am I going to grow, grab hold of when my faith doubts? My own piety, my own inner sense of connectedness with God. Okay? Now, it gets especially pernicious when you start to think along these lines of like, well, how am I sure that I'm saved? If I'm not looking at the sacraments, I'm going to be looking at my heartfelt, fervent love for God, my prayer life, how active I am in church, how passionate I am about all of these internal heart-type concepts, right? 
But what you end up doing is you end up, well, rather the devil, because this is all spiritual warfare, the devil ends up slowly changing the question of how do you know you have a loving God, a God who accepts you graciously for the sake of Christ Jesus? And the answer goes like this, by faith. Yeah, well, how do you know you have faith? Because of my piety, my burning love for God, my fantastic prayer life and all that, because of my internal piety. So how do I know at the end of the day that I'm saved? Because I am pious. Ooh, we've just gone full circle to Rome, haven't we? Do that which is in you, and God will do the rest. So we see how pietism leads us astray. Now, as pietism rejects the externals, it rejects the external form of the church in favor of small groups. So if you go to a large megachurch, or if you've been in one in the past, and they invite you to go to small groups, you can thank Lutheran pietism for this development. Prior to Lutheran pietism, there was no such thing as small groups. It was the church. Now, that uh, then translates itself into a different doctrine of the church. What happens on Sunday morning isn't really true church. We all gather together there in order to fulfill the ordinance of Christ. But what happens is what happens in my home, in my little enclave, in my little small group. That's true church. Okay, so you've rejected the external of the sacraments, the external of the church. What's next? The externality of the office of the holy ministry. I don't need that guy to come between me and my Jesus. That's how it's usually framed. I don't need any, any priest to be a mediator. I have direct access to God. So in my small group, in my home, I am a pastor, a minister, a priest. Priesthood of all believers. So fast forward 150 years. We've got, we've got from Luther to Spainer. And we're in the 17th century, you know, fast forward to present day. And somehow this is like woven itself into American Lutheranism as if the priesthood of believers is some sort of doctrinal standard um, that comes to us from Luther and the confessions and the scriptures, where in fact, it's a foreign body. It's a foreign body that's infiltrated. Okay, so what do we want to do? What is our immune system when we detect a foreign bacteria or virus that has come into the body? We want to go to the Word of God. The Word of God is our immune system. It's going to show us what's right and what's wrong, what we can keep and not keep. So that's our project for today, is to get a biblical sense of the royal priesthood. If you are looking for a proof text or a seat in which you can find this doctrine, you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. So that's where we'll begin. If you'd be so kind as to open your Bible or turn it on. We also have uh, Bibles up here on the sides, so please feel free to sneak up and grab one. And we will simply, uh, for the sake of it, start at chapter 2. And we're going to uh, we're going to go through uh, well verse one through verse ten. Okay. 
First Peter chapter two verse one. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants. In what sense are we Christians newborn infants? Is this just a clever analogy? Is this just like you know how babies like milk? You should probably like God's word. Is that is that what he's saying? What, in what way do we Christians see ourselves as newborn? We're dependent upon feeding. And then I heard the even deeper answer, the more rooted answer, is baptism. Because in baptism we are given new birth. We are born again, born from above through water and the Spirit. So we have new birth in holy baptism. And then as newborn babes we need to be fed. Okay, so already in this text we see baptismal imagery, baptismal language, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Okay, let's pause there. In verse 4, the first reference to a living stone, to whom is that referring? To Jesus. Jesus is the living stone, crucified and risen, living stone, rejected by men, of course, that's why he was crucified, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And this then is really the, uh, we, we are conformed into his image, and thus, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple of God in Christ Jesus. Other imagery is used biblically where Christ says, um, destroy this temple, and in three days I am raising it up again. What, what temple is he talking about? His body. And so it's no mistake then when we become members of his body by partaking of his body in Holy Communion. He gives us his body to eat, and so we become members of his body. And if his body is the temple, then we are the temple. Now, this is a different imagery set teaching exactly the same thing. Here Christ is the living stone, and we being, are being conformed into his image, no longer dead stones, but now living stones in him, and with him together are being built into a spiritual house or a living temple. A living temple. This is one of the reasons why in the book of Revelation, as we saw, there is no physical temple. Why? Because it's us, and it's Christ. The dwelling place of God is with man, entempled, enfleshed, in us, with us. Okay? So, like living stones, we are being built up as a spiritual house. And look at the free-flowing transition to new imagery, to be a holy priesthood. St. Paul, or excuse me, St. Peter has no problem whatsoever simply saying, are Christians the temple? Yes. Are Christians the priesthood? Yes. So to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual 
sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If we are a holy priesthood and we are offering our spiritual sacrifices and they're made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ is what? What's he acting as in this imagery? If we are the priesthoods and he is a priest, he would be the high priest. High priest, exactly. And also, implicit and hidden here is how does the high priest, think of the Old Testament imagery of the um, of the Levitical priesthood. How does the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, put away all sins, make atonement for all sins, and thus make himself and all the others acceptable to God? Yeah, he takes the blood of the Lamb, and he pours it out on the hilasterion, the top of the, of the ark, the mercy seat. Okay. So then... Implicit in this, look at the language, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, we'll talk about that in a minute, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not only is he here our priest, but he is also the priest that sacrifices what? Himself. He is the priest and the lamb. Okay, so in this section alone, we have Christ as the living stone, part of the temple, we have Christ as the high priest, and we have Christ as the sacrifice. Now, in what sense is he the sacrifice? Well, what is, in, in what sense is he a sacrifice to God? He offers himself in love and in faith to God and on behalf of others. It reminds me of the post-communion collect in our liturgy, where we thank God for the salutary gift, right? And we pray that through this, he would strengthen us in faith toward him and in fervent love toward one another. Christ embodies this as high priest, and the sacrifice is the sacrifice of himself, in faith toward God, and in love for man. Now, do you see how in this way Christ sacrifices himself? If the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself, do you see how on the cross he fulfills this perfectly? Even though God has forsaken him, does he love God? Yes, my God, my God. Perfect sacrifice, perfect love to the Father. And then is not are not the soldiers, the Jews, all of representatives of all humanity, hating him and despising him and rejecting him unto death? Absolutely. And yet, what does he do? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he sheds his blood. Perfect love has no other than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And so he lays down his life. See, so this is the fulfillment of the law, and it is done through the sacrifice of self. And we have this par excellence in a way that we could never achieve ourselves, but the way that Christ did on the cross. Now, when we go to spiritual sacrifices, like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices, 
What do, we, what do you think you're ta- is being talked about there? Spiritual sacrifice. Being conformed into the image of Christ and offering sacrifices in the same way he offers them. In faith toward God and in love for one another and fulfillment of the law and being faithful to God even and holding God to his promises even when everything appears to be contrary and in laying down our lives for the lives of others in love even for those and especially for those who deserve it not who harm us and treat us poorly okay so then not well I should say it this way as it goes for Christ so it goes for us he is chosen and precious, and therefore in him we are chosen and precious. He is a living stone, and therefore we are like living stones, being built up into a spiritual house together. We have a holy priesthood because he is the holy and high priest, and we have this holy priesthood in order to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus, all our works being cleansed by him, but also being made into the image of him who is not only high priest, but also sacrifice. Okay, so there's a lot packed in there. And we're going to unfold that as we go along. But what I want you to simply see right now is the language of holy priesthood. Holy priesthood. Verse 6, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So here, clear reference to Christ and clear reference to those who believe in him. Now, notice that this comes from Isaiah 28.6. For example, um, Isaiah 28.6 prophesies, this is the study note in the Lutheran Study Bible, that though Jerusalem would be destroyed, God would build a new Jerusalem that could not be destroyed. This prophecy was fulfilled in the creation of the church. All right, verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. Because we've just heard the promise of God from the Old Testament. That whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Then Peter says, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So that's Christ, who's rejected and now is the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. As an, as an interesting aside here, the Roman Catholic argument, um, remember where Jesus says, um, upon this uh, rock I will build my church? He, he refers to Peter as Petros, and then he says, upon this Petra, I will build my church. So he changes the word subtly in the Greek. Not so much Peter, but Peter's confession. That's the foundation. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. If you were to sort of ask Peter, who is the Petra? Is it you or is it Jesus? And then you were to call through 1 Peter and 2 Peter and see what he says. Guess, the, guess who the only person is he refers to as the Petra? Jesus. Not him. And that is the case here. So the rock of offense is the 
Petra, Scandalu, the rock of offense. <laughs> I heard one pastor describe this as, um, if any of you have pavers on your back patio, and inevitably, because of the, the way the earth shifts, one of those gets stuck up like this, that becomes a rock of stumbling. <laughs> Petra Scandalu, a rock of offense, because you trip on it, you fall and you get smashed. So in the ancient world, of course, they built their roads these ways. And so they would refer to a, a rock in the road, a stone in the road that got out of place as this. So he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. And here's finally our language for today. A royal priesthood. A holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's own people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay. So what is Peter telling us here? That we as Christians, as newborn infants, as baptized, we are a holy priesthood. And that's a verse 5. And we are a royal priesthood. That's verse 9. Now, not according to our imaginations, not according to what Lutheran pietism would teach us, but just according to the scriptures, what is the job description for the holy priesthood and the royal priesthood? Well, we have two chief things here in this text. The first is to offer spiritual sacrifices, and it's Paul in Romans 12, we'll get there in a minute, God willing, who fleshes out what these spiritual sacrifices are. But again, we talked about them being after the image of the sacrifice of Christ, love for God and love for neighbor. That's a spiritual sacrifice. You set aside your, your own sinful nature, your own ego, and you lay down your life for God and for man. That is a spiritual sacrifice. We do this every day, whether we realize it or not, in our vocations. Father and mother do this whether they realize it or not when they wake up and take care of their children. Okay, then second, we have this language that comes to us in verse 9, that you, plural, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, spiritual sacrifices and proclamation. Now, again, that doesn't mean that every one of us needs to go out onto the street corner or stay outside of Stater Brothers ringing a bell, but rather vocationally and in our lives, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The imagery there, of course, is new creation imagery, isn't it? Remember the very first thing God says in Genesis is, let there be light, and so from the darkness comes forth light. Paul explicitly, and Peter here less so, makes this a motif for conversion. Just as the word brings light out of darkness, so the word brings faith out of unbelief. We are brought out of darkness, out of the darkness of unbelief, into his marvelous light, that is into faith, into Christ, the light of the world. Okay, and so we proclaim his excellencies. 
All right, so now we have a biblical understanding that we are, in fact, by virtue of baptism, we are a holy priesthood, we are a royal priesthood, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices, and we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, this language actually comes to us. Peter is borrowing this from the Old Testament. As we are turning to Exodus chapter 19 to see the Old Testament background for this language of priesthood, uh, I want to also then pause. If you have any questions or any comments, if you see anything of interest, let me know. Uh, one second, we have to get, I see two hands, and we have to get a microphone to you. So, Pastor, I've, I've found that because we're sinful human beings, um, the and we're simul justus at peccator, we're constantly struggling with the head and the heart matter, mm -hmm. uh, piety and pietism and everything like that. And um, we, we oftentimes think that that's left to our own devices to try and draw that straight line with that perfectly straight line freehand. Um, but I think that the only real way to walk that fine line, even in our sinful flesh, is that everything flows, begins, and ends with the divine service. So my life revolves around Sunday to look forward to the divine service where I'm going to be read, I'm going to learn the word, and the sacraments, and to when I'm during the week, I look back to the divine service or forward, whichever way it goes, and my life revolves around from Sunday to Sunday, from season to season, from year church year to church year, as a way to kind of that immune system to not fall off on one side of the horse or the other, where every time you doubt, you look to the sacrament either in baptism or in the Lord's Supper, which happens in the divine service, mm -hmm. and to, uh, and everything, all the activities of your life and the church, the, the church, the activities of the church and the activities of your own life flow from the divine service out and then come right back in, even with like missions and evangelism where we expect to be these apologetics. The, the idea is not to convert, convince them, but to come, <laughs> mm -hmm. not, not, not to convert them there, but to come and be converted where Christ has promised to be. I just find that I, I just don't know how humans can do it outside of the divine service being where everything revolves around it rather than these individual pods of activities that just kind of somehow mesh together, which they, they never will because we're sinful. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's just, yeah, I really appreciate that reflection, and it allows uh, us to have opportunity to maybe make this distinction. Pietism, bad. Piety, good. <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes when we say pietism, bad, the message that gets across is piety, bad. And thus you prove how orthodox you are, how Lutheran you are, how Christian you are by how bad you are and how much you trust that Jesus covers your badness. So obviously, obviously, I hope, obviously, that this is just the opposite of an error, which is the opposite error. 
Right? So pietism bad, piety good. We're going to stop in the middle. And then what was so well articulated here is that Lutheran piety, rather than based on the self, whether that be the heart or the head, Lutheran piety is based in Christ, and not Christ in the abstract, but Christ where he promises to be with us, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. I came not to be served, but to serve. So the divine one present with us, serving us, divine service, and that's why we call it divine service. In the German, it was Gottesdienst, God's service. And that is, it's a shocking thing that Christ gathers there to serve us, his people. In response, we give him thanks and praise, but that's not the main thing. In fact, if that weren't there at all, it would be inappropriate, but it wouldn't be an end of the divine service. The divine service is God's action in Christ Jesus, where he then ministers to us through word and through sacraments, strengthening, encouraging, deepening, expanding our faith, all of these things. And when we invite people into, into the Christian faith, we're inviting them into that. When we're proclaiming the excellencies, I think so often we do this too abstractly, like, hey, well, there's this book that tells me about Jesus, and so I want to teach. Okay, that's fine, and that's an approach, but it is equally an approach that the risen Lord is with us every Sunday. Come and see. Come and hear. Come and meet his people. Um, so we proclaim these excellencies of, of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then, as was so well articulated, our piety as, as Christians flows from the living Christ, meeting us with his word and sacraments. We go out into our vocational lives. We have our, we have our household devotions and devotional life. And then we return together corporately um, in divine service. And so there's this cycle week by week, year by year, as we follow the church here all the way through our lives. So, thank you for those comments. Was there, a, was there another comment? Yes, please. I just wanted, are you going to be a, um, I noticed they make a reference, you know, when you read in Chronicles and Leviticus, the difference between the Levi's and Aaron's son. So, something like that. Because I, I noticed there's a difference between the priesthood mm -hmm. and... Uh, yeah, there's a biblical distinction between the Aaronic priesthood, which is very short-lived, and the Levitical priesthood. And then there's also a third priesthood, um, the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, and that, this is the way in which Christ is a priest before the Levitical priesthood. So he's a priest in the Old Testament sense, in an even deeper tradition. All of that is a little beyond our purposes, because it's Except I will make reference to it in just a minute, okay? Um, but yeah, the offices of the Old Testament, Levitical priesthood, Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, slightly different topic, or at least the other side of the coin. All right, chapter 19 in Exodus. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so you recognize right away where we are. This is uh, right right after the Exodus, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I will lift you up on eagles' wings, right? Except they didn't really have majestic eagles. These are buzzards. It's just not quite as, and I will lift you up on buzzards' wings. I don't know. It's kind of, kind of changed that. <laughs> kind of changed that song for me. All right. So um, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Well, there's a baptismal type in here too. If you just flip ahead with me, I want to get back to the main point, but if you'll flip ahead to me, uh, with me to the um, second half of verse 9, or really the last phrase of verse 9, it's over on page 128 in your Lutheran study Bible. We're skipping a little section. I just want you to get the baptismal allusion so you can see where Peter's getting this from and why as he's doing work ultimately on baptism in, in his first epistle. Um, he leans on this. So, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. So this washing, this baptism that makes the garments pure, all of you who have been baptized have been clothed in Christ, this, is, this all becomes New Testament baptismal imagery. I simply point that out to you because it's part of the rite and ritual that accompanies this proclamation from God that this people has now become a kingdom of priests. Okay, what comes next in chapter 20 is the Sinaitic covenant, the Old Testament proper, and we learn all the details about this in, in additional books of the Torah. But we, we here establish the Levitical priesthood. Now, question for you. If you are a member of the kingdom of priests, are you automatically a member of the Levitical priesthood? No. So, what's the parallel to that? Just because Peter says that you are a royal priesthood, does that make you possessors of the pastoral office? No, you see? So simply by being God's people in the Old Testament, you are a kingdom of priests. Peter isn't saying anything new. He's saying now to Jew and Gentile who have faith in Jesus, you are now part of this spiritual priesthood. You are a royal priesthood and a holy priesthood. Okay? Does that in any way in the Old Testament negate the Levitical priesthood or that distinction or office? No. Does it in any way negate the... Uh, Pastoral office of the New Testament. No. Okay, so we're seeing where Peter got it, and we're seeing then that this is biblically understood, whether Old Testament or New Testament, as not conferring either the Levitical priesthood or the office of the holy ministry, but being something deeper. In fact, were the Levites who became Levitical priests, were they first members of this royal priesthood? Yes. We are all, by virtue of God's calling, by his election, we are all members of 
the royal priesthood. And then from this priesthood, in the Old Testament, he took some to be Levitical priests, and from this priesthood, he takes some to be pastors. But not everyone. There is a fullness of gifts that God bestows upon all of his priests, and not all are called to be pastors. Others are called to many other glorious tasks within the church. Okay, so far so good? All right, I see a hand in the back. Let's entertain that. And then let's, um, since we're running a little short on time, we'll turn to uh, one other section. We could turn to Revelation 5 that also mentions all Christians as being a kingdom of priests, but we're not going to. We could, we could turn to <laughs> Hebrews. I heard paper crinkling. We can turn to Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 9. And we can really read the whole of Hebrews in this way because one of the major theses of Hebrews is that Christ is our high priest. And the inference of that is that we are all priests underneath him. So we could turn to both of those areas. And where, where I will have you turn is Romans chapter 12. This is where we're going to get Paul's description of living sacrifices, of being God's priests and what that means. Yes, please. Um, when I think of the Aaronic and Levitical priesthood, I think of intercession because they were there to offer sacrifices, etc., in the temple. But when Christ comes to our lives, we go directly. So while we might be a royal priesthood, it's because now we can speak directly or we can have a relationship directly without intercession. Yeah, I don't know what I think about that, to tell you the truth. I don't truth. know what I think about it either. Cause, <laughs> yeah, because I don't see any of that language. I mean, that's a big deal. But I, the scriptures never talk about it that way. So I think, I think in the Old Testament, every, you have the, the royal priesthood. Everyone's a priest. You have the Levitical priesthood. These things aren't in competition, nor do you have to like go through one to get to God. God ordains the Levitical priesthood in order to serve the people through his temple and participate in his Old Testament divine service. I mean, this is, we sometimes view the whole Old Testament worship and liturgy backwards, as if it's a bunch of people offering sacrifices to God, and then God goes, okay, well, I guess that's acceptable to me. And no, that's paganism. That's not the Old Testament. The Old Testament, God institutes the priesthood, institutes the sacrifices in order to cleanse the people so that they can dwell with him and be blessed with him. The whole of Old Testament worship is from God to man, just as it is in the New Testament from God to man. Make sense? So then, then we don't need any of this artificial like, well, how do I get to God? I have to go through a Levitical priest. No, you never had to. In fact, that's a misunderstanding of what the Levitical priesthood is. In the same way, a Christian doesn't have to go through a pastor to, to call upon God. Uh, that, that's a misunderstanding of what the pastoral office is. So this has all gotten screwed up. Uh, fingers are usually pointed to Spainer as creating this then crisis between uh, the pastoral office and the royal priesthood. In fact, you can see evidence of this in many LCMS constitutions where the royal priesthood is given all the power and there is this complete eye of suspicion cast upon the one who holds the pastoral office. And in fact, you get this really weird inversion where the pastor is under the authority of the congregation, which, okay, true enough, but find me a scripture that speaks in this way. Find me one that commands the pastor to listen to the voice of the congregation. No, but rather a scripture that commands the congregation to listen to the voice of 
the pastor, you see. So we, we in, in the Lutheran Church in America have gotten all scarred up and mangled by this, and it's affected all kinds of things and, and the way we view clergy. And, you know, if a, we even have these sort of catchphrases for clergy when we don't like what they're saying. We say, oh, he's hair pastor, right? Um, we say he's a sacerdotalist. And so we've got these we've got these kind of nasty names. We and, and all of this is a result of Spainers pitting the priesthood, the royal priesthood against the pastoral office, which again, they're never pit against each other in the scriptures. God's people can always go to God, but God comes to his people specifically through these office and means that he creates in order to serve people. In the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices and circumcision. In the New Testament, the pastoral office, the Lord's Supper, holy baptism. You see how they're parallel? All right, so thoughts, thoughts to ponder. With, um, with just a few moments left, let's open to Romans 12. And let's see, uh, just beginning at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, you remember how Peter connects that to a spiritual sacrifice. So here, the, the concept is the same. The language has just changed. A living sacrifice versus a spiritual sacrifice. Can you give me an example of what a living sacrifice is? Uh, you're thinking too piously, and I mean that in a good way. I, I mean concretely, tell me something. You know, if you sacrifice a chicken or if you sacrifice a goat, in what sense is it living? It's living before you cut it up. <laughs> but is it living when you cut it up? Is it living when you kill it? No. This language is so bizarre. A living sacrifice is a complete conundrum and paradox. There's no such thing as a living sacrifice. A sacrifice by definition is dead. Thus it's sacrificed. So this language of Paul, we just gloss over. This is wild language to be a living sacrifice. Okay. Now, only can this mystery be understood when we understand who we are in Christ Jesus. Remember how Christ is, is depicted in uh, Revelation as the lamb standing and yet as one having been slain. He's literally the living sacrifice. What does Paul say? I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So we have life because we have Christ and we are caught up in this paradox where to, where the sacrifice we offer to God is our bodies in service of our neighbor. Okay. That reaches ultimate peak and crescendo in martyrdom as we bear witness to our neighbor even at the cost of our bodies and even still, even in death, remain living. But this is what we're called to every single day is to rise and wake up and we're priests. And what is our sacrifice as royal priests? Ourselves. I'm going to sacrifice myself in faith toward God and fervent love toward my neighbor. That's what the commandments tell us to do. This is our identity as priests, foundational. Okay? So present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. See how the sacrifice is indeed, or at least has this aspect of being a sacrifice to God. 
We can't let anybody take that away. I mean, just because Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient, all-atoning sacrifice doesn't negate that our sacrifice has any vertical relationship at all whatsoever. I, that is a ham-fisted move that is, frankly, completely contrary to what St. Paul says here. We can't do it and hold to St. Paul's theology. And we're depriving ourselves of this honor that, that God gives, that we can indeed offer ourselves, our bodies specifically, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual worship? And here's where worship spills out of Sunday morning, doesn't it? And it becomes a living, daily reality. We make the sign of the cross. We remember our baptism. We remember that we are spiritual priests. We remember that the sacrifice of this day is myself in faith toward God and in fervent love toward my neighbor. The ideal set before me is Christ crucified, and I can trust that God is conforming me fitfully, slowly, imperfectly, conforming me into his image. Thus, verse 2, do not be conformed to the image of this world, or do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so if we add in Romans, then I think we have, we have an overlap with Peter on this point. But biblically, and this will be my, my kind of concluding point, biblically we are a royal priesthood and a holy priesthood that's not identical with the pastoral office. And our roles as holy and royal priests are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then in both Peter and in Paul, 1 Peter 2 and Romans 12, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices on a daily basis to our God and Father, to be conformed in the image of Jesus. Okay, so that's the high honor and calling. Now, if we had infinite time, I would take you through the three estates so we could meditate on what it means to make yourself a spiritual sacrifice in the context of the family. That's the first estate. In the context of the state, the government, the civil world, that's the second estate. And then the third estate would be the church. And not the church in abstract, but the local congregation. So you can ask yourself, how am I being a living sacrifice in the congregation? What does God call me to according to the scriptures, and how might I use the gifts and abilities that he has given me? Okay, so thoughts to ponder, meditate on that. The Lord be with you.